Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a privilege to continue our walk through the Bible series. We are making a good headway through the Bible as we find ourselves about halfway through Paul's letters to the church. We find once again the Apostle Paul contending for the church, for the safety and the protection of the church. I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. What do witches and wizards, scientists and salesmen, and masons and super apostles have in common? What do witches and wizards, scientists and salesmen, masons and super apostles have in common? What would you say? I would say that they feed on our love for secret knowledge. They feed on our love, our curiosity for hidden secret truths. Each one in their own way does that. We're going to see in this letter that Paul is actually contending with some pretty interesting opponents this morning. I'm not going to tell you who they are. We'll discover that as we walk through the book of Colossians this morning. But we will find that the same kind of opponents that Paul faced and that the church faced in the first century are the same kind of opponents that the church faces today. And that the same kinds of temptations that the Christians in Colossae were tempted to follow after are the same kinds of temptations that we're tempted to follow after today. Let's dive into the book of Colossians. What we'll find here this morning is that Paul will contend that all the wisdom and all the knowledge that we ever need is in Christ. And we're called to walk in his wisdom. That's why I entitled the message this morning, Colossians, the wisdom of Christ. The supreme wisdom and knowledge is found in Jesus, not in these other places. So the first thing of three that Paul will show us this morning, number one, is that Paul shows that wisdom for walking worthy of the Lord is our goal. Our goal in life should be to gain the wisdom of Christ that we may walk worthy of the Lord. So that's point number one. Paul shows that wisdom for walking worthy of the Lord is our goal. We should live a life seeking for wisdom, just like Proverbs 2, which Gideon read for us in our scripture reading this morning. And we see that this is our goal In three ways in this first point. Number one, in Paul's prayer. Look with me in Colossians 1.9. Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's prayer for the church of Colossae And by extension, all the churches and us as well today is that God would give us a knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, what Paul wants the church to understand is that in Christ, 
that in Christ we have the knowledge of God's will. We don't have to go somewhere else for the secret hidden knowledge or truth of the things, the divine things that are really real and really superior and really wise. All that we need to know is in the gospel. All that we need to know has been revealed to us in his word, in the wisdom of Christ. And so Paul is praying that may you be filled with all the things we've taught you in the gospel. You don't need other things to be wise, to discern God's will. You need the gospel. The purpose of Paul's prayer, we see then in verse 10, why do we need to be filled with this wisdom and this knowledge? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance with patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in other words, the reason Paul is praying that you be filled with all wisdom and insight is that you are no longer children of darkness. For God has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And therefore, because you are no longer children of darkness, we should no longer walk as the children of darkness. And when we think of that list I gave at the beginning, witches and wizards, we could say unbelieving scientists and salesmen, masons and super apostles. All those people are children of darkness. So why on earth would you, Christian, want to follow their ways? Why would you want to seek wisdom from such as them. God in his mercy has transferred you from the devil's domain. He has rescued you. You have been redeemed in Christ and brought into the kingdom of Jesus. And therefore, we must abound in true wisdom because we're called to walk worthy of who we are. Worthy of the Lord, worthy of being children of the kingdom of Jesus. And so there in verse 10, we're called to walk worthy. We're called to bear fruit, to increase in knowledge, to be strengthened, to endure with joy. To give thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So in all these ways, in the opening of Colossians, Paul shows us that our goal is to be filled with all of the wisdom of Jesus, that we might walk worthy of our Lord.
That's our goal in this life. You know, last week during lunch, we were talking about New Year's resolutions and, you know, I want to lose a little weight, I want to run a marathon, I, you know, different uh, guys threw out different, I don't think I asked the gals, but some of the guys are throwing out different things, you know, and those are good goals, I think, to have. But the number one goal each year should be, may the Lord allow me to walk worthy of him. May that be our resolution in the turn of a, a new year. Walk worthy of the gospel. To celebrate the faith that saves us. And to seek to bear fruit that is fitting with the Holy Spirit that fills us. When God redeems us from the kingdom of darkness. May we grow this year in wisdom. Now, that's a great prayer for the saints and for the church as we pray for one another throughout the week. May we grow in the wisdom of Christ that we may walk worthy of him. The second thing Paul shows us in Colossians is that Paul establishes the supremacy of Christ as the treasure house of all wisdom and knowledge. So this is one of my favorite portions of scripture in the New Testament. But we see from chapter 1, verse 15 to chapter 2, verse 5, that Paul is establishing the supremacy, the preeminence of Christ above all things. And then he shows that Christ himself is the treasure house of all wisdom and understanding. So that even the smartest person in the world with the highest IQ does not understand anything if they don't see Jesus as the supreme head of it all. Let's walk through this section together Look at chapter 1, verse 15. We begin by Paul showing us in this section that Jesus is supreme because he is the Lord of everything. And Paul argues this point by placing Jesus both as the head of all creation, the Lord of all creation, but also the Lord of the church. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This language of firstborn that is used is uh, language that would be described of kings, of lords. And we see that Jesus is the very image of the Father, the invisible God. He is the Lord of all creation. And why is that? Why is he the Lord? Because in him all things were made. Now, I'd love in eternity to have 
God describe all that that means? What does it mean that all things were made in him? And not just visible things, not just things in earth, but also in heaven, visible and invisible. We're told that in Jesus, all thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities were created through him and for him. Now this language of thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities is important for us to understand. And I will argue that in the mind of Paul, he's not merely speaking of earthly kings, but he is talking about the spiritual realms. Because remember last, uh, well, two weeks ago in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, we, thought, we saw that our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That all things, as we see here in verse 16, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. That means that all of the angels, even all of the fallen angels, are under the lordship of Christ. It makes me think of Satan and Job who came before the throne of God and had to get permission to afflict Job. In Psalm 90, we sung, we sung about the afflictions that God had appointed for his people. But this is so important for us to know because if Jesus is not in charge of everything, then we need to go elsewhere for protection against the things that he can't control. Do you understand? If Jesus is not Lord of everything, then there is wisdom and protection that we need outside of Christ. And that's a problem in Colossae. And Paul's dealing with it. That's why he reminds us that everything in creation is under the lordship of Jesus, whether visible or invisible. No rogue molecules, no rogue demons, no rogue dictators or politicians, no rogue bosses or teachers. No rogue spouses. No rogue family members. Everything is under the lordship of Christ. And then after that, supremely then, Paul shows us that Jesus is the Lord of the church. Verse 18 of chapter 1, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the Lord of creation. And he's the Lord of the church, the Lord of redemption. And that the supreme act of that lordship 
for the church is displayed on the cross. Something that's a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. And then Paul turns specifically to the Colossians with both hope and a warning. Look at verse 21. And you were, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, we, we can see Paul building up to the problem that's going to be presented shortly. But he's like, this hope of the supremacy of Jesus, of your redemption, is yours if... There's a qualification in verse 23. If you Colossians, if you First Presbyterian Church, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you want these things to be yours, you must continue in the faith. And whatever is going on in Colossae, there are threats that are seeking to make shipwreck of the faith of the Colossians. That are, that are jeopardizing their salvation and their perseverance. And so he lays this out. This is yours, church in Colossae. This is yours, First Presbyterian Church, if you continue in the faith not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And before Paul gets to the problem, we see here in verse 24 and following how he defends the function of his own ministry. Look what he says in verse 28. Him we proclaim, that is Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Here's our word again. With all, all wisdom, not some wisdom. Paul's wisdom wasn't a partial wisdom. It wasn't his best guess wisdom. He's saying as the apostles. They are warning and teaching with all wisdom. And why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that's the goal, maturity in Jesus. Paul here speaks uh, against, I would say it is a warning to any church or any Christian or any family that rests on their laurels. You know that, well, they were baptized once. They made a profession of faith once. Or makes the most important day, you know, some people talk about your spiritual birthday. What was the day 
you are saved. I always have a hard time with that. I think especially as a cradle Christian, one who I don't really remember a time when I didn't believe. You know, does that mean I'm spiritually inferior, right? We see in the New Testament that the focus is never what's behind. It's on what's ahead. And it's on persevering. It doesn't matter where you were. It's where are you now and where are you going? doesn't matter if you believed once but no longer believe. You're no better off on the day of judgment. It's about persevering in faith. And Paul's goal is that everyone would be mature. It's also not enough to just say, like, to kind of misuse John 3.16. For everyone who believes, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that you ever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, you prayed the prayer, now you're good. It's not that way. We're called to maturity in Christ. We're called to grow in him, to be sanctified in him, to grow in our knowledge of him. You know, that's why we preach the word of God on Sunday. And I don't just preach a a shallow evangelistic message every Sunday. We're going to go into scripture. That's why we're seeking to learn sound doctrine in our evening services, so that we can grow in our knowledge and understanding of the word of God. That Peter and Gideon and, my, and myself, we can say we have striven like Paul to proclaim him, to present everyone mature in Christ. That's my, that's my commission for you and for those the Lord brings to this church, to present you mature in Jesus. And that's going to require warning and it's going to require teaching. And all of it, as Paul said, verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So that Jesus' way of making you mature is by giving energy to his ministers of the word who toil for your maturity. But is it just A nice thing to have your minds filled with knowledge? You know, is that kind of a bonus thing? Right? Kind of, well, I believe in Jesus. Isn't that enough? We see here that I guess it depends on how you define the question. But we see here a church filled with with what Paul describes as faith. We read about that at the beginning. We skipped over it, but in Paul's thanksgiving for the church of Colossae. But at the same time, baby faith leaves you vulnerable to the wolves. And so after Paul talks about his apostolic goal to present everyone mature in Christ, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now we're going to get into the problem. And this is why we need the wisdom of Christ and to become mature. Because there are wolves. Look what what Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1 and following. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom 
and knowledge. So here Paul's saying again, Jesus is the storehouse of all wisdom and knowledge. And then verse 4, this is key. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. But here in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This this idea in the Greek is it's persuasive speech. It's the kind of speech that you would hear from the Greek rhetoricians, the great speakers and the sophists in the Greco-Roman world. The, the goal was to win the argument. It didn't matter whether you were right or wrong. The goal was who could give the best argument, give the most persuasive speech. It had nothing to do with truth. It had nothing to do with truth. It was about winning. And what we're going to see here then in a moment is that persuasive speakers, sophists, charlatans, are coming in and presenting a kind of faith or a kind of gospel or a kind of spirituality that actually subverts Jesus under something else. So that some other secret hidden wisdom is the ultimate wisdom and the ultimate knowledge and understanding. And it's actually going to tie very closely to witchcraft and wizardry. I was tempted to have Gideon read for our Old Testament reading from 1 Samuel 28 where Saul, King Saul goes to the medium at Endor to try to get the secret knowledge about what God was really doing. And of course, God gave him true knowledge in it, but it was of the demise of his whole family, of uh, Saul and his sons. Did you know that actually uh, witchcraft was a problem in Judaism? I'm going to I'll share a little bit more about that in a moment, but it's not a new it's not a new problem at all. But at any rate, uh, before we move on to the third point, I've shown you that Paul establishes the supremacy of Christ as the treasure house of all wisdom and knowledge. He's the Lord of all. He's your reconciliation if you continue in the faith. Paul's goal is to present everyone mature, and the reason we need to be mature is so that we do not make shipwreck of our faith by the plausible arguments of false teachers. So now in our third point, we're going to dig into a little bit about what was plaguing the Colossian church. But the third point then, the third and final point this morning that we see from Colossians is that Paul commands the church to walk in the wisdom of Christ. Paul commands the church to walk in the wisdom of Christ. And we see this from chapter 2, verse 6 to the end of the letter. In typical fashion, Paul begins with doctrine. He begins with the gospel. And then he shows what it means to live in light of the gospel. And we see in typical fashion the same thing here in Colossians. But the first thing we see here is that he calls us to walk in Christ and beware of dangerous teaching 
Walk in Christ and beware of dangerous teaching. In chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, we are warned against philosophy. And then in verses 16 to 23, we are warned against <coughs> Old Testament, excuse me, <coughs> Old Testament shadow ceremonies and regulations. And there's some kind of blend going on that's affecting the church. On the one hand, philosophy, which means love of wisdom, so some kind of contrary wisdom to the wisdom of Christ. And then some kind of Old Testament shadow ceremonies and regulations. And I want to read this section to you. In verse 8, regarding philosophy, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. An empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I have had more than one uh, fellow student in college walk away from the Lord after they completed their degree in philosophy. Now, studying a little bit of philosophy in itself is not bad. I think it's actually helpful in apologetics to understand the main kind of flows uh, and really philosophy is, a, is this kind of ever oscillating or revolving movement between we can't know and we can know. If you follow the, the history of philosophy, it really pendulum pendulates is that a word it, it it goes back and forth like a pendulum between these two ideas there really isn't new information under the sun all of the the current in vogue philosophy is just a rehash of things philosophy in fact is the most failed discipline in all of history because it still can't answer its basic questions of who we are why do we exist What is true knowledge? It can't answer its own questions. But philosophy, while it can be helpful in some ways, ultimately feeds our lust for independent knowledge that sets us apart from others, and even sets us apart from God. Unbridled philosophy is really the full aim of Adam and Eve in the garden when the devil promised a secret hidden knowledge if you eat that fruit, if you eat the forbidden fruit. And not only the church in Colossae, but in every age, we are susceptible to eating that fruit. And seeking kind of better knowledge. I'm bored of the gospel. I want something deeper, more mysterious. Something that others don't know. And that's the danger of every age. We aren't that far from Adam in our lusts and passions, are we? If you study the history of the church, in fact, the history of Christian thought, the greatest damage to biblical doctrine in the church has happened when theologians have synchronized 
biblical doctrine with pagan philosophy, which was the great endeavor of the Middle Ages, and which was the reason and the need for the Reformation that we had through Martin Luther and other men when they rediscovered the gospel and the word of God. So beware philosophy, Paul tells us. Beware philosophy. But he also tells us to beware the Old Testament, I'm going to call them shadow ceremonies and regulations. The wisdom of Christ is not to go back to the Mosaic Covenant. We saw in Galatians, for example, how the Mosaic Covenant was a temporary custodian of the people of God until the heir came, the offspring of Abraham, which is Christ. And so to go back to the food laws, to go back to the Sabbaths and the ceremonies is going in the wrong direction. And at this point can only satisfy and please the flesh. But it can't contribute to our spiritual needs and the wisdom that we have in Jesus. Look with me then at verse 16 and following where Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow. This is why I call them shadow regulations and ceremonies. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. In fact, to go back to these things as your basis of reconciliation or justification before God is to disqualify you from Christ. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Now, here we're getting to the problem. They're submitting to false regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The reason super apostles, the televangelists, on TV. I don't know, do you have televangelists in Norway? A little bit? You certainly do in, in, in America. The super apostles, the Masons, which is a secret society of secret knowledge, a blend of Christian and Greco-Roman pagan beliefs, like the Knights Templar. There's one here in Stavanger. Witchcraft, wizardry, Kind of an unbelieving science. A science that's not rooted in God as the creator of the laws of physics. All of these things, the reason they're so appealing is that they bear an appearance of wisdom. They bear an appearance of wisdom. 
But the wisdom that they feed is the one that promotes our flesh. Self-made religion. But now I want to dig in a little bit to what's going on here. Does this sound like Judaism to you? We know in other we know we know that Judaizers are persecuting the church because we've seen that in other letters. A call A either to wholesale abandon Jesus and go back to Judaism or two a kind of Judaism where yes you have faith in Jesus as the Messiah but you need to continue to keep the law the the Mosaic covenant. It doesn't seem like either of these. In Colossians, it gives scholars no end of debate. And the reason it doesn't quite seem like it is because Paul's also talking about things like in verse 18, asceticism and worship of angels. That wouldn't have been part of regular Judaism. Regular Judaism does not practice the worship of angels, nor does it demand asceticism. So what's going on? The scholar, uh, a scholar by the name of Clinton Arnold, I think gives a good, helpful explanation of what's afflicting this church. He says, The best explanation for this dangerous teaching is that it comes from the context of the local Jewish and pagan folk belief. So local Jewish and pagan folk belief in Colossae and Laodicea. Syria. A central feature of the local folk belief was a tendency to call on angels for help and protection from evil spirits. This characteristic is well attested in many inscriptions and ancient documents. For instance, a magical stone amulet designed to be worn around the neck for protection from evil spirits. An amulet is this thing here. And it reads, Michael, Gabriel, Oriel, Raphael, protect the one who wears this. Flee, O hated one, Solomon pursues you. So we see here a kind of syncretistic Jewish and pagan superstition to call on angels to protect you from Satan and from the evil one and evil spirits. It's kind of like... um, one of my grandmothers, who was, I would say, a cultural Roman Catholic who buried a saint in her backyard so that her house would sell, right? Or the, just the whole Roman Catholic tradition of praying to the saints so that they might ask God to get you. Or you, like, you pray to the saints, you hope they get to the Virgin Mary, who then if... If she, because it's the Virgin Mary, it's Jesus' mom, hopefully Jesus will listen to his mom so that he will help you. We're not that far from Colossae. That indeed the, the idols, that the, the statues, the carvings, the icons, the images that have filled the history of the church are in fact disqualifying many from the faith. And that's why Paul gives us this letter, calls us to walk in the wisdom of Christ, lest you be disqualified, lest you be persuaded by plausible speech, by self-made religion that promotes 
the flesh, but is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, Clinton Arnold goes on as he comments on what's going on in Colossae. He says, what likely happened at Colossae is that a shaman-like figure within the church had attracted a following and was presenting himself as something of a Christian spiritual guide. This person probably claimed to have superior insight into the spiritual realm and was advising the Colossian Christians to practice certain rites, taboos, and rituals as a means of protection from evil spirits and for deliverance from these afflictions. When Paul hears of the spreading influence of this teaching that devalues Christ and fails to appreciate the new identity of believers in Christ, he writes this letter of warning and encouragement. He does not minimize the threat presented by the demonic powers. Those are real. But emphasizes the supremacy of Christ over all powers, as we saw earlier. He asserts the unity of Christians with the exalted Christ, which entails their sharing in his power and authority. If you want protection from the very real spiritual powers that threaten to destroy the church, we will find all the protection we ever need in Christ. There's nothing else we need. There's no other rituals. You don't need to sign yourself. You don't need to wear an amulet. You don't need to have a magical bowl. They've found Jewish bowls that are similar to that amulet that Arnold talks about that you would keep in your home to ward off evil spirits. You don't need shrines. You don't need statues. You don't need crucifixes. All you need is Christ and his word. And if you want to walk in the protection of Christ, walk as Paul calls us to walk, worthy of the Lord. That's all you need, Christian, to be protected from the foe. The heart of this we see in chapter 3, where Paul tells the Christians, chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So keep your eyes fixed up here. The enemy wants us, our eyes fixed here at the horizontal level, at the boogeymen, at the things that we think are threatening our, our prosperity in this life, our spiritual flourishing. But we're called to lift our eyes up here to Christ, to the throne of God above. Moreover, he calls us to, verse 5, to put to death what is earthly, to mortify the flesh. And I'll let you study that in your own time. Put on who you are, guys. You got to put on the right jersey. You know, you're not playing for the kingdom of darkness anymore. 
So don't wear that jersey anymore. Don't go to coaches of the kingdom of darkness anymore. They're not going to help you. If you have been made a child of light, walk as children of light. We saw that in Ephesians, and we see that this morning as well. Put off the earthly things, Paul says, verse 7 of chapter 3. And these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We get to do this every week as a church. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly teaching and admonishing one another. Here's our word again, in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's one final reason that we are called to walk in the wisdom of Christ. We've already seen this morning that growing in the knowledge of Jesus, growing in sound doctrine, growing in our knowledge of the word and and the basic doctrinal principles we understand from the word is not merely to have a big head. It's actually essential to protect us from making shipwreck of our faith, to protect us from false teachers and from the wisdom of the world. But it's also to protect our witness to the world. And Paul ends with this in in his final appeals. In chapter 4, verse 5, he wants the church of Colossae to bear witness to Jesus, faithful witness for the advance of the gospel. And look at verse 5 of chapter 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So not only should we endeavor for the mortification of our flesh, of putting to death what's sinful in us and putting on the new self, but also to be a faithful witness in the world a faithful witness in your workplace, in your home, in the social circles that the Lord has placed you in. And I want to just conclude by uh, citing an old theologian from uh, the days of the Reformation by the name of Wolfgang Musculus to this point. He says, Truly, he walks wisely, who is the sort who lives among people in a manner that does not hide the fact that he is a Christian. Let me read that again. Truly he walks wisely, who is the sort who lives among people in a manner that does not hide the fact that he is a Christian. He does not fear or annoy them, nor does he act unreliably, unstably, or hypocritically. Rather, he is polite and of a peaceable disposition. 
It is inevitable that about such a person they say, this is a good man because he is a Christian. Now, we can't always control how the world will think about us. And if they malign Jesus, they will also malign us. But I think the point is fair that Musculus makes that the person who walks wisely, talking about Christians, is the one who does not hide the fact that they are a Christian in the world. But that as we do that, we don't do it to annoy people, but rather we do it to be polite and peaceable. And that a huge part of our witness as Christians to the world is that we are reliable, stable, and true. Right? Not unreliable, unstable, and hypocritical. So I want to call us as we seek as a church to walk in the wisdom of Christ. As my prayer for you is that, and my aim is to present you mature in Christ on the day of glory is that we would live in such a way in the world that's consistent with who we say we are. That in walking in the wisdom of Christ, others would see, and that others would come to know the wisdom of Christ as well. So brothers and sisters, don't be taken by swindlers and sophists. Any pretender that claims to have a knowledge and insight of wisdom that's greater than Jesus. But also, brothers and sisters, show the supremacy and the lordship of Christ in how you live by walking in the wisdom of the gospel, not ashamed of the kingdom to which you've been placed in and not ashamed of the one who destroyed every ruler and authorities grasp on you by his blood on the cross. Let's pray.